Welcome to the Prime Leadership Podcast, where we keep you informed about the newest trends and discussions in the UK engineering and manufacturing sector. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Prime Workforce, dedicated to assisting leaders in engineering and manufacturing across the UK in recruiting the right talent for their leadership and management needs. Visit prime-workforce.co.uk. I'm delighted to be joined by Paddy Dwyer, who is the co-head of DLA Piper's Manufacturing Practice. For those wondering who DLA Piper is, it's a global law firm. I think they're across roughly about you know, 40 countries, but they work specifically with companies ranging from multinationals, you know, your global 1000s and Fortune 500s, to emerging companies development, developing within industry-leading technologies, and that covers manufacturing also. Paddy is a highly experienced commercial lawyer and a specialist within business-to-business contracts. Paddy, uh, delighted to have you on the show today. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, Terry. I'm delighted to be here also. Thank you for having me. Great to have you on the show, Paddy. And you are known as an expert within the manufacturing sector in the UK, especially discussing this week's hot topic, which is going to be the importance of servitization within manufacturing. To get us started then, Paddy, it would be great if you can give us an insight into what servitization is. I can. So servitization, it's a, a term that has been around for, for many years. It's, it's coming to, to a bit more prominence of late. For example, it was, it was front cover of, of the manufacturer's magazine last month. So it, it, it's an on-trend. It's a hot topic. And what it is at its very basic level is the bundling by manufacturers of services with their products. And I think it's the, it's the by manufacturer point, which is the important one. So many people across many different industries within manufacturing provide services, whether that's ancillary to their product offerings, whether it's maintenance and a multitude of services are layered in with product offerings. Servitization, I think that the magic in it is it's the OEM which provides the service accompanying the product and you're providing a, a solution or an outcome to your customer rather than just okay. selling goods. So, Brian, so, so just to get that kind of clear in my head, so that would be, for example, you build a specific product and then bolted onto there, it would be the service and repair aspect of it or some other function. Would that be correct? Yeah, I mean, that's at one end of the scale. I think there's there's more advanced solutions which people offer at, at the different end of the scale. So if I give you an example, Rolls-Royce is probably the flagship sort of servitization example in the industry. And what, what that looks like is Rolls-Royce, manufacture and sell engines to, among other people, commercial airlines. And they've done that for many years. The, the servitized approach to that is rather than selling an engine, getting a revenue stream just from sale of goods, they will allow their commercial airline customers use of the engine and the payment is power by the hour. So the, the customer pays for the power which is produced by the engine rather than the engine itself. So it's providing a mm. providing a powered solution rather than selling an engine to a customer. Okay, interesting. And, and, and a lot of your listeners, as I mentioned, are leaders within manufacturing businesses that will, that will be making specific products. How would our listeners look to servitize uh, their product offering? So it, in terms of how to servitize it, it, it will bring it will be 
business specific as to to the particular method by which you you servitize. The first point in in how to achieve it is to understand what your business does well, to understand what your the market that you're selling to, what it requires. And we have a a strategy, a methodology, if you like, that, that talks to the how, which which we call a rapid servitization methodology. And that involves research and into what what does your customer look for? What what is it within your customer's industry? So rather than your own industry, what in your customer's industry is it that you can plug a gap in? So if we take a different example of MAN trucks, uh, MAN trucking have historically competed with your Mercedes, your Volkswagens, your, your, your everyone who, who manufactures and sells lorries and trucks to, to various businesses, including logistics businesses. MAN took the view that we can compete with these, these other manufacturers who create the same thing. Well, actually, we can drill down to the next level of detail of what do our customers worry about when they are buying vehicles or leasing vehicles. And it's not just the reliability of the vehicle. You know, uh, uh, with no disrespect to the industry, a truck is a truck is a truck. However, they took the view that we can look at the performance of our trucks, the fuel efficiencies, the, the number of insurance claims, and we can reduce costs in other areas of our customers' businesses by implementing a system which measures tire pressure, which measures driver's performance. And then you can incentivize as a, as a business, you can incentivize your better performing drivers. You can ensure that tire pressure is topped up on a more regular basis if that's the gap. And you can come up with a solution which saves money on fuel, which is a, a, a much higher cost saving than actually the, the expense on the trucks in the first place. So the, the first step on how to servitize is, is research and understand what it is in your own business that's, that's good, what you do well, and also understanding, and this is the more important part, what your customer does with the products that you sell to them and how you can improve that experience. And it's, it's maybe just thinking outside the box a little bit on, on that element. Once you've done that research, there's, there's a whole process that then follows this. So the, the first is, is an analytical exercise, which is the A in our rapid servitization model. So the analysis comes of how can, how can we as a business address those gaps that we've just found? And you may need to, to look at investment in technology. You may need to look at upskilling your own people and you, you need to have an honest critical analysis of your own, your own business to understand one, is this opportunity worth it? And two, where are the gaps in us being able to take this to market? The next step is to then plan for what you've found. So if you've identified an opportunity and you've also identified some gaps in, in your own ability to deliver, then you need to plan for, for how to roll this out. So if there is a, a gap in the technology, for instance, then do you employ a software engineer? Is that scale is that the right scale of employing one person or actually do you need to go out there and find a company that you need to acquire somewhere because their particular offering can, can plug into your overall service offering and make your servitized solution the market leader? Once you've got a plan in place, you then obviously need to implement it. And that does what it says in the tin, but there are different ways to do that. So, for example, you're, you're going to market with a brand new way of working. You probably want to test it. So how do you test it? If you have a, a customer with whom you've got a good relationship, then you might want to build a, a pilot with that customer relatively low cost or maybe even no cost 
so that you can test it in the field, in the market, get the feedback from your customer, improve the product in that test environment before rolling it out on a on a whole on a wholesale basis. And then the last point in our rapid servitization methodology is to, is to develop. You're continuously developing the product, making it making it better, improving it at all times, in order that you can stay in front of the market and in your whole solution. In terms of how to servitize, that's probably the methodology that we've yeah, seen. Yeah, and, and, and Paddy, because when, when you're going through that there, I'm thinking, I tell a lot of the listeners must be thinking, you know, it's, it's, it's getting people thinking outside the box from mm-hmm. your traditional methods. You actually go, well, you know, how do you, because I'm guessing this all will be able to create, there's a lot more opportunity for cross-sell as well between, you know, with a specific company you might work with, but actually predictable revenue streams as well. Yeah, correct. So, uh, you know, that, that's, that methodology that we talked about of how to sanitize, how to roll it out, it makes an assumption that, that you've decided almost to do it, that, that before you get there, there's a question of, of why would you, why would you consider it? And I think the, the why you've touched on, on the main one, I think, which is the predictable revenue stream. So your, um, your listeners traditional business model is, is transactional based. So, month by month, week by week, there will be volumes of sales which, which come and go. And over a course of time, a business has a relative predictability of, of how well their products sell. But there is no certainty involved and a customer could potentially turn off the tap at any point. With a servitized model, you, you are entering into a relationship with your customer. So whether that's three years, five years, 10 years, or whatever it looks like. And you're, yeah. You're annuitizing your income stream over the course of that, that contract, that relationship. So there is a, an increased predictability in, in the revenue. And it, most people implement it in parallel to their transactional business. So it's, it it, it provides that predictability, which in turn, you know, at the, the bigger end of the spectrum, if you've got a company which is listed somewhere, then that, that predictability has a positive impact on your share price. If going lower down the spectrum, the predictability can be more attractive to potential investors who come in or potential purchases of the business. And even if you're a leader of an organization that's not necessarily looking for an acquisition or for further investment, that predictable revenue can be appeal, can appeal to your financial institutions. So you may get better interest rates from your bank. You may get higher, higher ability or more ability to, to get credit from your bank simply because you've got a more predictable revenue stream that you can, you can point to in the book. Because what we're going through is a lot, a lot of positives here and moving to this, well, or, 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 or um, embracing this type of model and opportunity. But what, what potential barriers could our listeners face? It's a good question. I think again, there's, it will be bespoke to certain businesses, but there are some which are generic, I think, across across most manufacturing industries. And the first and often the highest hurdle to jump is a, a cultural problem. So for many years, your listeners will have been leading an organization which is very good at making things and very good at selling things. To shift that business model into a, a model whereby you're going out to your customers, you're providing a solution, you're providing an outcome, and you're building a, a long-term relationship with with the end user of the goods is simply a different business. 
So the, there's a cultural shift to overcome, I think, and there can be objections from executive board level, from stakeholders, from personnel on the ground, from members of your supply chain. And I think that the first, the first hurdle and often the biggest hurdle is overcoming that, that cultural gap of we are not just manufacturing and selling widgets anymore. We are providing an outcome to a customer over a, a particularly long period of time. I think that's, that's probably the biggest hurdle. After that, you get into some much more tangible problems and the, probably the biggest of them is a funding gap. So if, if I roll back to the, the Rolls-Royce example that we talked about earlier on, you go from creating an engine and selling an engine in a relatively short space of time to creating an engine, entering into a relationship with a customer, receiving small but regular revenue over a period of time, maybe breaking even some, at some point during the contract. So if let's say you enter into a five-year agreement, your break-even point may be year three. By the end of year five, the intention is that it is more profitable to have entered into that contract than to a solely engine on day one. But there is still a gap between that creation of the thing and receiving an investment or a return on the asset. And whilst over a five-year period, the intention is it's more profitable, you do have a funding gap on that on the creation of that particular engine for a much longer period of time. And then moving from, from that, so the funding gap is a very real one. But after that, you need to, to create and come up with a business model which allows you to, to exploit the servitor solution that you've come up with, whatever that looks like. And that involves people which may or may not have the necessary skills to sell a solution rather than a product. You may also need a different technology infrastructure, so different resources in place, which if you look at the, the MAN example that we talked about earlier, that shifts very much from having a, a truck or a truck on wheels with a, a capacity to load to a whole system that measures performance, measures efficiencies, and, and delivers the output of that to their end customers. So, so having the necessary technology or the necessary resources. And then finally, from, from my point of view, the most obvious one to me is, is the contract problem of the contract which underpins the sale of this solution to your end customers. Looks very different to a contract for the sale of goods. So I think there are, there are a number of hurdles and non-objection, none of which are a material if, if, if it makes sense. If it makes sense to your business that you can be more profitable, then all of these hurdles can be overcome. That touching on so it makes complete sense and, and you know, I'm guessing that, you know, the risk there, Paddy, I kind of was going through my head when you were talking about the funding gap is probably the importance of the strength of the contracts as well that are put in place. I mean, I, I, I'm thinking off the top of my head just on the basis of, a, you know, if you're taking a bit of a risk in three years and then a, say a company ends up, ends up uh, going bust within a couple of years and it's a, there's a lot of risk there, obviously. And, and actually make sure you've got uh, the, uh, you know, the relevant contract in place and everything's tied up. Um, what would be, what would you see as different in the contracts when using this model compared to a, you know, a traditional model uh, such as selling goods? You're absolutely right. The having a robust contract in place does mitigate a lot of the a lot of the risks that that we've just talked about. To to point to the one that that you talked to first of the funding gap. Yes, you absolutely need to have 
a model, first of all, for even even independent of the contract, you need a, a model which is profitable. And whilst there will be a funding gap at the start and a risk at the start, ultimately you want to get to a place where on fulfillment of the contract, it is more profitable to have having to have having done that than to having sold the engine in the first place. Then you think about some of the risks that might happen in between and you identified one of them of what happens if your customer goes bust and you've not reached your break-even point. So you want to address that in the contract. So that might look like a retention of title clause, for example. So the, the title in the engine never passes to your customer. The customer never owns the particular engine. Instead, you retain ownership of the goods. You charge for performance of the goods. And there are certain trigger points in the contract, which mean that from time to time, you can go in and one, inspect them, make sure they're still in good condition take them back in certain instances and an insolvency situation would be one of them so that you could take that particular take that particular good back in house and maybe resell it to someone else there are a number of different arrangements or a number of different protections that you could put in place to help you you're never going to fully mitigate the risk of a customer going bust but you're not going to do that today anyway in in relation to a a goods contract but then other differences between a servitized contract if you like a simple sale of goods if you do retain title in, the, in those goods then the insurance arrangements look different so you're that they remain the manufacturer's products so you probably want to insure them rather than asking your customer to insure them no longer looking at warranty claims so whereas historically you may have sold the goods received payment for the goods waived them off and Crossed your fingers that you're not going to get a warranty claim in the next 12 months. And, and once that's passed, everyone's happy. You move from that to a very different performance regime. So you may have service levels in there. So response times for maintenance agreements, availability for any particular technology portals that, that you may want to add onto your goods. And within that, there may be some kind of incentive, incentivization regime as well. So if you overperform, you may you may receive a premium on how much your monthly payment is. If you if you underperform, you may want to give your customer a discount in any one particular month because of, of lack of performance. So the, the, the performance regime looks different. You're moving from from warranty claims to service levels. You also want an ability on on your end to end the relationship as well. So from a manufacturer's point of view, you raise the point of if the customer goes bust before you've reached your break-even point then that's a risk. I'm absolutely correct. That's a risk. There may also be a scenario where it's no longer in your interest to provide this service during the course of the five years. So in a simple sales agreement scenario, you sell the goods, the customer walks away. In a servitized solution, you're in a relationship with a customer for a, a particular period of time. And at some point, you may want to get out. So you you want to have provisions in the in the contract which allow you to do so in certain certain circumstances probably the the biggest difference from my point of view as, as someone who writes these things though is the burden of responsibility on the customer so if you if you take a step back from from the contract and just look at the, the landscape and, and the, the environment that you're now in in a sale of goods scenario the only real obligation on your customer is to, to pay the invoice so there will be other restrictions around don't reverse engineer my goods, keep things confidential and so on. But ultimately, a customer's obligation is to pay the invoice and that's, that's sort of it. 
in a servitized solution, however, if if your income depends on performance of the goods because you're charging for an outcome rather than for the goods themselves, then you want to ensure that the customer does or doesn't do certain things that can prejudice that. So the customer, for example, can't use the goods outside of the way it's described in the manual, or they may need, they may need to notify you from time to time of certain things that are happening to them. They may need to, to control the temperature around the goods. They need to allow you access in and out at particular times so that you can perform proactive maintenance. There's more obligations on the customer in this arrangement than there would be in a simple sale of goods arrangement. What those responsibilities are will be completely bespoke to what the product is and what the solution is. But they need to go into the contract because without it, you're you're not going to generate the revenue that you would otherwise be able to. I think there are there are many others, many other differences between a sale of goods contract and a a servitized contract. And we could we talk about each of them and <laughs> take an awful long time. And yeah. I, I, I know that listening to lawyers will not be the top of your listeners' <laughs> agenda on any particular day, but I think the importance is. They are different. These contracts do look different to a, a sale of goods agreement, which which everyone will have used for many years in the in the manu- in whatever their manufacturing business is. Exactly, and Paddy, you're an expert in this. You know, end of day, you know, you have brief contracts. You know, especially your experience with you know servitized models as well. As you mentioned, you could you, you could be speaking about hours about this, but I think you know, given that, I mean, I, I mean, I, I was I was switched on there to listen to exactly each point because each point is relevant but they're all different and I think mm. the importance of actually having an expert like yourself and having that conversation and making sure that all bases are covered for whatever you might be doing because not every manufacturing company is going to be the same there'll be different right. product offerings there'll be different markets there'll be different regions I think a big thing you know kind of summarising everything Paddy and bringing that together because we've had a really good intro there we've had a a good uh, insight into why people should look to servitize, you know, what potential barriers might be presented with this model. Looking at it contractually, make sure everything's, uh, you know, the, the the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. But then, then showing all your experience and, and the companies you've worked with before and the relationships, you, you know, and the, the implementation of this that you've done before, Paddy, how do you servitize effectively? If our listeners are sitting and thinking, oh, do you want to know what I'm looking at? I've been interested in looking into that model. How, how, how would you go about doing that effectively? So uh, I think we we looked at the, the methodology earlier on that we have seen that, that rapid servitization model of, of researching, analyzing, planning, implementing, and, and then continuously developing that solution. I think for me, the, the difference that what make servitization can be very easy to do. And it can be very easy to, to bundle a service with a product and take it to market. I think from what I've seen that the most profitable and the most successful transformations come from having invested a lot of time in the strategy and a lot of time in the research and a lot of time in what does our customer expect? What does the solution look like? How robust is it? Where are the gaps in our own business? Where, where do we need to plug gaps? Do we have the capability to do this? Do we have the people? Do we have the technology? How do we roll this out and how do we test it? And how, how do we ensure that whatever this outcome, whatever this solution is, when we finally launch it on the market, how do we make sure that on day one it works and it's attractive and continually we are looking back at it to improve it? And 
I think the, the most successful transformations and the most successful journeys are the ones that have been planned well enough. I think now there's obviously always a balance. There's obviously always a balance between you could plan forever and never deliver anything. So, so there's obviously always a balance. But I think having that strategic hat at the start and saying we're, we're going to achieve this and we're going to achieve it within 12, 18, 24 months. These are the milestones that we're going to put in place. So by month three, I want to have had conversations with five of my key customers. I want to engage the consultant somewhere to check the rest of the market. By by month six, seven, I want to have a plan in place, which which this, the the executive board are behind, which our supply chain have, have seen and are feeding into. By month 10, 11, 12, I want to plug the gaps that I've already identified. By month 14, 15, I want to have trials in place with two or three of my top customers. And by month 18, we're taking this thing to market. And I think having that, having that plan at the very start, identifying each particular path, identifying the deliverables in between each one, that's probably the most successful and the most profitable journeys because at that point, if it's not going to be profitable after 18 months, you, you will know within three or four and you, you've invested no time. If it is going to be profitable and you've delivered at each point in time and you've in 18 months time, you have a parallel profitable revenue stream, which hopefully is reliable, hopefully is something that you can deliver, makes you stand out from your competitors and it, it, it's an extra revenue line in the book. Yeah, I tell you And I think, um, you know, there's a lot to think about there, Paddy, and I think it's what, what, what the key thing is to open up people's eyes to other, other opportunities and actually how to, how to, how to change a potential business model. And it doesn't need to be drastic of that. It could be, you know, as you, as you briefly mentioned, it could, it could be alongside, um, you know, the current goods, um, operation that's actually happening at the minute within, within the business. You know, it could be something that, that is tested out and if it works, amazing. See if it doesn't, then it's nothing lost compared to what, what's happening at the minute. A lot to think about there, eh? Yeah, I think, I think so. I think the other, the other reassurance for, for your, your listeners though is they are probably already doing a lot of this. There's not many, I think, manufacturers at the minute who are not providing some form of service in one way or another. I think that the takeaway point is to, to take a step back and look at it and say, actually, can we, can we do something different? with how we present these things to the market and planning for that and, and seeing if actually if we do tweak it a little bit, if we tweak how we deliver this bundle of things to the market, will it be more profitable? Okay, and I think you know, right at the top of the, the show, you mentioned, Paddy, about the importance of taking that step back, but actually looking at where the strengths of your product offering is and actually how that would relate to the, you know, the customer. And how to, uh, how that would benefit the customer and, you know, through whatever method and then kind of, you know, working back from there. So I think that, that's valuable. Paddy, thank you very much for that. My mind, my mind is blown, you know, um, and a lot for, a lot for me to think about. I think this applies to a lot of different industries and let alone manufacturing. But guys, um, I think, you know, putting all that together, I think that will bring us to the end of this week's manufacturing ignition podcast. I said, I'd like to thank Paddy as, as we're all kind of getting a feel here. Paddy is a real expert. You know, he's a commercial lawyer for DLA Piper, but he's an expert in business-to-business contracts. And if you are a manufacturing leader, thinking about um, you know how to utilise servitisation within your business, or would like to discuss anything further with Paddy on a commercial commercial front, please do get in touch. 
um, directly. Uh, Paddy's email address is paddy.dwyer, that's D-Y, uh, sorry, P-W-Y-E-R <laughs> at dlapiper.com. That's paddy.dwyer at dlapiper.com or call Paddy directly. It's 0151 Thanks very much for being on the show. Thank you, Terry. I'm on LinkedIn as well if people feel that that's an easier way to reach out to me. But thank you for, for inviting me. It's, uh, I've enjoyed speaking to you about this and hopefully I'll speak to some of your listeners off the back of it. Thank you very much. Guys, thank you very much for tuning in today. I hope you did enjoy the show. Thanks for listening to the Prime Leadership Podcast. If you've made it this far, we take it that you enjoyed the show. In return, we'd love it if you would leave us a rating and a review on Spotify and Amazon Music. Subscribe whilst you're there and we'll catch you for the next episode.